0: Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're reading from verses 15 to 20 this morning. You know, supposedly, there's a story that Julius Caesar, after he had conquered Britain, he's standing and he's overlooking the battlefields and he overlooks the battlefields and he says, you know, Vini, Vidi, Vici, and it's just Latin for... I came, I saw, I conquered and uh, Caesar was arrogant but he did indeed conquer. He came at conflicts with full force and and really that's it's kind of indicative of much of Western civilization, the way that we approach conflict. It's not just conflict with other forces, it's not conflict with the enemy. Often we approach conflict with fellow believers that way of we're coming to conquer. And that's really not a biblical perspective. Sometimes we approach conflict. Sometimes we approach conflict with our spouses, with our friends, with our neighbors, our co-workers. We come wanting to be proven right, don't we? We come wanting to win, but not win them. We want to, to win, to best them, to beat them. But Scripture has a lot to say about that that perspective, a lot to, to say to correct that perspective. And Jesus gives us a different way of approaching people in conflict, a different way of addressing people when there's conflict, not to try to best them or to win or to exercise power or authority over them, but to love them as our brothers and sisters. So let's read in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. This is God's Word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to... Father, thank you for your word that gives us this promise that where we are gathered, you are among us. Thank you, God, that you promise that when we gather to resolve conflict, you are among us. When two or more of us get together, you are in our midst. And Lord, we we have confidence in that. We thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that you, you promise to hear our prayers when we have conflict and difficulties. God, I pray that not only would you hear our prayers in those times, but I pray that right now, this morning, you would hear my prayer. You would strengthen me as I preach your word. And Lord, I pray that as I preach, Lord, you would have your words be what are preached today. Father, I pray for all those who hear that they would um, throw away those things that are not from you. But Lord, all those things that are from you, I pray that we would take to heart and own and be changed by you. Father, pray for your grace, pray for the enabling of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in in verse 15, where the ESV says, You have gained your brother, the the NIV and other translations, the New American Standard, they don't say you have gained your brother, they actually say you have won your brother. You've won your brother. So, contrary to looking at conflict as something for us to win, to dominate, it's actually for us to win somebody over. It's with the, with the perspective of winning them back, to winning restoration, winning them back to a right relationship with us and with the body of Christ. It needs to be said, though, that these verses in Matthew 18, they can be intimidating, can't they? How many people have ever been intimidated by Matthew 18? As you've, you've read through this, you're like, oh, I don't want to do that, or I don't want somebody doing that to me, or, oh my goodness, this could go very wrong. Um, these can be intimidating verses. Sometimes we react by fearing them and just saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Somebody sins, that's not my responsibility, that's somebody else's responsibility. Maybe that's the pastor's responsibility, my small group leaders, the leaders in the church, the other guys. Maybe that's somebody who's more mature, that's their responsibility, so I'm going to leave that one alone. Because we're uncomfortable. We lack confidence when we read these verses. Because I think sometimes we can miss what the verses say. Other times I think we can take these verses, we can, we can bludgeon people with them. We can go and say, you're sinning! You need to stop it! And if you don't stop it, I'm bringing somebody else with me. And we miss the intent and the heart of these verses if we do that as well. These passages, it can be abused and misused, neglected, because it's too difficult. But I think that God would have us not miss some things in these verses. He would have us see the the context, really, of where these verses come in Scripture. It's very easy to miss the context of this commandment because um, we have a tendency as Western believers that we, we like convenience. We like to quickly get to the point. And we don't like to see where things come in context in Scripture. How is this command given? What comes before it? What comes after it? How is Scripture laid out so that it helps us better understand it? Instead we see, okay, I'm looking for a verse that applies to my situation. Boom! Okay, somebody sinned against me. Here's what I do. And, and we fail to see, okay, what's the setting that Jesus gave the sin? Because that actually helps us interpret the passage itself it's easy to miss the spirit and the intent of the commandment if we just leap to the commandment alone it's easy to miss the fact that jesus says in these verses if we just take the first two verses in 15 16 or 17 the first three verses we can miss the fact that jesus says he'll be with us in carrying these verses out we can miss the fact that the father says he'll answer our prayers about conflict about going to somebody else that he'll do it we can miss that context. It's either a weird ringtone or a clown in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, I believe this scripture is here, though, for, for, for the main reason, really. And that's really because God has a desire for us. God desires to use His people to, to restore one another. And, and He promises to help us and be with us in the process. Did you get that? God, God desires... To use you, to use his people, to help us restore one another. And here's the good news in these verses. He promises to help us and to be with us in this process. It's really the main idea this morning. And a couple chapters earlier, if if you've been reading through Matthew, if you've read through over the last month or so, in Matthew 16, by enabling the Holy Spirit, you remember there's, there's a point where the Apostle Peter, he says through the Holy Spirit that Jesus, you are the Son of God. He declares he's the son of the living God. And Jesus, in response to Matthew, in Matthew 16, go ahead and flip back there in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 16, verse 18. Peter's responding to Jesus' declaration of Jesus being the son of God. And Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then look what he says to Peter. He says, Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's really singling Peter out here, isn't he? He's giving him the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it probably didn't escape the notice of the other disciples. If you, if you were one of the twelve, you would probably notice if Jesus says, Peter, you're, the, you're a rock. Simon, I'm calling you the rock now, and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. The disciples are like, whoa, hang on. Do we get some keys too? At least some car keys or something, or keys to the local, I don't know, where they keep the mules, something. <laughs> then, then in chapter 17, though, if, look down in your Bibles again. And, and, and in chapter 17, Jesus singles out Peter and James and John, and they go up on a high mountain, it says, and Jesus is transfigured in front of them while the rest are waiting. So Jesus singles Peter out, tells him he's the rock, he gives him the keys to the kingdom, then he takes Peter, James, John, they go up on a mountain. They see Jesus transfigured and then it says Jesus then tells them about what's going to happen to him. He says he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and he's going to be killed and on the third day rise again. And then it says the disciples were greatly distressed. They're greatly distressed. This, This one who they've come to finally see is the son of God. He's going to be leaving them. He's going to die and be delivered over. And what does he mean on the third day he's going to rise again? They didn't quite get it. They were greatly distressed, it says. And then right after that, in the end of Matthew 17, you can look down at the end of Matthew 17, these, these tax collectors, they come up to Peter, recognizing he has some kind of leadership position in the, in the group. They come up to Peter and they say, Peter, doesn't your master pay the, the tax? So Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, you know, what are we going to do about this? And So Jesus says, well, Peter, go out and cast, cast a hook in the sea. The first hook you throw out, pull up the fish, open its mouth, there's going to be a little shackle there, and go and pay them. So look at Matthew 17, 27. He says, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus is really singling Peter out here. He's asking Peter to speak for him on his behalf to the tax collectors. So in light of the fact that the disciples are distressed about Jesus dying, being delivered over, and then something about raising again on the third day... And then now they've been noticing Jesus has been really treating Peter specially. He's been giving Peter some authority here. And so they come up to Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 18, and they say, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because they're distressed. They're wondering, who's going to lead them? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be Peter? Who's it going to be? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew 18, he doesn't answer them directly, but instead, look in Matthew 18:3. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and look on with somebody else with you. In Matthew 18, 3, it says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever calls as one of these little ones Pay attention to that phrase, little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he goes on to give examples of how important it is that we not sin and that we don't call somebody else to, to sin. He says what's important is not who's leading them is what he's telling disciples. He didn't answer their question directly, but he did. He said what's important is not who's leading you on earth, but what's important is that you all become like children. You all become proud. You treat everybody equally humble like a little child. It's not just a little child he was putting in front of them. He said don't become eight years old. What he was saying was you need to relate to each other as if you are a little child. You need to relate to all of each other as if you're all little children and treat each other that way. And be careful that you don't cause another little child, someone else who's a little child of the father, to sin. He says don't Don't cause each other to sin. Take it very seriously. And then he talks about how you need to watch out so that you don't sin yourself. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, poke it out. Some pretty dramatic things happening here. Jesus then moves on to tell the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18. And he drives home the point that they have to have a loving concern for the one who does stumble and loses their way. And then what he's saying to the disciples is you need to relate. Here's, I don't want you relating to each other as if one of you is greater than the other. I don't want you relating to each other as if you're better than Peter, or Peter's better than you, or you look at each other that way. I want you to care each, about each other, not, not cause each other the sin. I want you to watch out so that you don't cause somebody else to stumble. And here's the way to respond when somebody does sin, go after them. This, this, this verse is not written to pastors. It's not written to people who were leaders in the church. This is written to all the disciples. And he says, if, if someone goes astray, go after them like a shepherd goes after a lost sheep. That's the context that we find this passage in Matthew 18 about going and confronting. That changes the way we look at this passage, doesn't it? If we look at this passage saying, okay, Jesus is saying, I want you to relate to each other like little children, humbly, equally, realizing you're all little children in need. Be gentle, be tender. And by the way, don't cause each other to stumble. It would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and were thrown into the sea. And watch out so you don't sin yourself. And if you do, if you do go astray seek after somebody who is gone astray like a shepherd goes after a lost sheep and rejoices when they're restored so at the end of the parable look down at Matthew 18, 14 he says so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones you see that's the same theme Jesus is talking about from the beginning of Matthew 18 and when he's talking about the little little child and then he's talking about the little ones anybody who goes astray so who's the little ones we are the little ones is what he's saying all of us Or the little ones. We're like children, and we need to relate to each other that way in a in a good way, humbly, dependently, realizing we're in need, and so are others. Humbly receive each other in His name. We need to guard against setting ourselves up as better than each other. We need to guard against self righteousness that comes in and thinking that we're somehow superior. You know, you're just a little one, is what He's saying to the disciples. And so, little ones, I don't want any of you to perish. And here's what, you, here's, here's what the application of that is. In verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you. So this is right on the heels. He doesn't want any little ones to perish. What's, what's God's design? What's His plan for not having little ones perish in sin? His plan for not having little ones perish and fall into sin and go astray is you and me. That's His plan. His plan is that we would actually go to each other so that none would perish, that we fulfill the Father's will that none would perish. And how do we do that? Well, it's really the first point. It's go to our brother or sister if they sin against us. That's point number one. Go to our brother or sister if they sin against us. That's the mindset we're to have with them. We're to approach them as another fellow little one. Realizing that we're part of God's design and plan, that He doesn't desire for any to fall away, for any to go astray. So He's calling us. What happens? What happens when your brother or sister sins against you? Well, look in verse 15. It says plainly, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That should change the tenor of these verses. It should change the way that we approach these verses. It should change our perspective of seeing that, hang on, we're all called to view each other as little ones and as fellow little ones. We're all called to go after those who go astray and to keep each other from stumbling. And we're all called to care for each other by going and telling our brother and sister if they sin against us. You know, we all have those times when we're sinned against, don't we? Um, sometimes we, we think we're sinned against and it's just a matter of our preference or our convenience or our opinions or our perspective that gets trampled on. But what do we do when there's legitimate sin? When, when God's word is clear in an area and somebody has, has sinned against us? How do we react? Do we react like Caesar? Do we seek to dominate? Dominate. Do we seek to win, to conquer? Do we seek to like, be right in the argument, to vindicate ourselves? You see, the world is tempted to all kinds of reactions. And what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, he's saying, don't be like the world. The world thinks that one person is better than the other. You're all little children. The world looks out for number one. You're not to be like that. You're to look out for each other. And here's how you do that. Going and telling your brother their sins. Don't ignore them. What is what is a worldly perspective? Think about it for a minute. What's the worldly perspective? Well, we're tempted to separate from people, aren't we? When somebody sins against us, what's our first inclination? To withdraw, right? Our first inclination is to withdraw, to, to separate, to pull away, to, to maybe ignore them if they sinned against us. Does anybody have those those thoughts at all? You ever feel like pulling away, ignoring or separating? Well, fine, they sinned against me. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. I'm going to pretend they don't exist. My, my, my kids try to do this, <laughs> It's kind of funny to see my two-year-old. Um, he sins and he's like, I'm going to pretend you're not there. I don't see you. So he wanders away as if you... Like, really? I can't, I, you're right here. I can see you. Um, sin it has a tendency to separate the world. What's the worldly reaction when people sin? The world pulls away or punishes, right? The world pulls away or it calls for punishment or the world can ostracize the sinner and make the sin public. There's, there's some desire in our hearts to... To ostracize that person who's done us wrong, to make public, to make them pay, to make it known what a dirty, rotten scoundrel they really are. Jesus is saying, "Don't don't behave that way. Go to them and tell them alone. Don't behave like the world. Think about how the world responds with vengeance and public rebuke and, and shunning. Let's think about a, a recent example over the past couple weeks. There's a popular celebrity chef named Paula Deen, and she's admitted to using a racial slur in the '80s and when she describes somebody, and how is the world responding? Whether or not she's guilty, not guilty, she said she was sorry, I don't know if she's legitimately sorry or not. That's not the issue, but it's, it's really a good picture of how the world tends to respond to somebody. Shunning, vengeance, wanting to make them pay, public rebuke. Whether she's guilty of racism or not it's not the point, but, but we're all prone to treat each other like she's being treated when there's sin. We're all prone to want to punish, to want to make somebody pay. Whether you admit it or not, that's a, that's a latent desire in us. We're prone to badmouth somebody. We're prone to make their sin public, to warn others away. Don't go near them. Mm, there's just something wrong. We won't say anything about what's wrong with them, but I don't recommend you hang out with them. I mean, we're, we're, we're prone to do that. We have those temptations to warn people away. But as little children, Jesus is saying, as little children of the Heavenly Father, don't do that. Go to one another. Go to each other and go to each other and tell them alone so that doesn't make it public. There's no vengeance. There's there's no making them pay. You go between him and your brother or your sister alone. And notice that it doesn't say, um, if somebody sins against you, go to your pastor, go to your care group leader, go to your best friend and ask your best friend, Sally, sinned against me. What do I do? Um, now scripture already gives us direction with what to do it says go to them and how do we go to them we go to them Remember, verse 14 he doesn't desire any little children should perish we go to them realizing they're a little child just like we're a little child so we need to go humbly we need to go gently we need to not look for the most spiritually mature person we're all little children we have the bible we can take scripture if we think they've sinned Then we can take scripture to them we need to go gently and humbly and and all of us as fellow disciples are called to go. This is an accusation, though. This isn't accusing somebody. This is going to somebody else and explaining from Scripture that what they did was sinful and helping them to see it with a with a goal. You know, my, my two year old. He he doesn't. He's not quite two. He turns two in a couple months. He doesn't really know when he's sinning yet, but he's learning. And he's learning when he sins and he doesn't realize it. But sometimes we tell him no and he gets this look on his face and he puts his head down and his brow gets furrowed. And he's like, oh, no, no. He doesn't like it. But then we tell him and he, I'm sorry. And um, we have to help him understand and see what he's done is wrong and why. He's just a little child. It's actually that that word for little children. It's the same diminutive word. It's not an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old. This is little children. We're all like toddlers would approach each other like toddlers, with gentleness, not expecting that somebody's going to see it when you, when you bring it to them. And also expecting that you're probably going to do a pretty bad job bringing it to them. So, so that's okay, go. And when I, I go gently to my two-year-old and I, I tell him, you know, Gideon, what you did was sinful, what you did was wrong. You disobeyed mom and dad, and disobeying mom and dad is disobeying God. And he's like, uh-huh. He doesn't have any clue yet. It takes him a little while, but with all of our kids, I've seen that after we go to him and go to him, then after a while they begin to learn and see. All of our kids, uh, we try to, as much as possible, make an effort to, when we're bringing them some kind of formative discipline, that, that we walk them through it, that we instruct them of what, how, how what they did was sinful, not only against the person they sinned against, whether it's a sibling or mom or dad, but also that when you sin against somebody else, it's disobeying God's law to love them. And when you disobey mom and dad, God says that you must obey your mom and dad, and so you disobey that. And so we try to show them gently from God's word, and then we go on to explain their their need for forgiveness because of that, because they sinned against God, and that, that, that God had loved them so much that he sent his son and provided Jesus as a sacrifice to take our place. And that if we put our trust, our hope in Jesus, we too can be forgiven. And by the way, Gideon or whoever it is that we're disciplining at the time, mom and dad, we we need to be forgiven too. We need hope too. And there's hope in Jesus and confessing our sins and trusting in him. And you can experience the same hope that mom and dad have and we want that for you. We don't want them to think that they're alone. We need them to see their need for forgiveness and to trust in Jesus. Even though we mess up god will help us learn not to sin when my kids are struggling will i ever stop doing this yes but but it'll take time and you're learning you're growing you may not feel like you're learning and growing but god's at work in you and and this this is how we're to go to one another we're, we're to go to one of those little ones with with gentleness with kindness with explaining that assuming now i mean condescendingly realizing that we're little ones too But go with that spirit of gentleness and that loving attitude, not condemning, but showing them their fault. Why? So that they can learn. When I tell my kids their faults, it's not so that I want to punish them or make them feel bad. It's actually the reverse. I want them to learn and grow and actually have hope in Jesus. It's the same way that we're to approach fellow little ones. And let's make sure that we don't skip over those words between you and him alone. Between you and him alone is what Scripture says. We aren't called to tell our best friend what they did. Don't go and say, Bob did this against me, or Joan did this against me, or Sally or Jim or whoever did this against me. Um, what do you think? Was that sinful? Now, If, you, if it's clear in Scripture, then, I, then we have enough warrant to go to them. Now, there are times when it's appropriate to overlook when somebody offends us, when there's a preference of ours that gets uh, violated, when we have a different way of doing things. Even when we have a personal conviction and it's not clear in Scripture, there's room there. It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense at times. Now, if it gets to the point where you're not able to overlook it and it's eating at you and it's bothering you, then you probably need to go to somebody. You probably need to go to them with, with the word and say, you know, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling, I could be wrong here, but, but when you did this, I, I try, I've try. i been trying to overlook it and I'm having a hard time. It's distracting me, it's changing the way I think about you and interact with you. And that's a good litmus test for us, by the way, If if somebody's sin against us or their perceived sin against us, if it's changing the way that we relate to them and we have tried to deal with our hearts and we're not able to do that, we, we need to go to them and be reconciled. It's important we don't skip over the words, though, between you and Him alone. Now, there are times, the caveat is, there's times when, when we might need physical protection when somebody has physically sinned against us or sexually sinned against us. It, this is not talking about those times when it's not wise or safe to go alone. But aside from extenuating circumstances, generally, the majority of the times we're to go and tell our brother or sister their fault against us, between them and us alone. Tell them privately so that we we, we protect them. So we don't embarrass them. We don't shame them. I wouldn't want to shame my kids into obedience. We don't want to shame each other as little children, as toddlers. We don't want to, we don't want to shame each other into obedience. We want to... We motivate each other by God's grace, and we want to protect them and help them like we would want to be protected and helped. And then the only authority that we have as to whether something is sin or not, really, it's, it's God's word. It's not our preference. It's not our likes or dislikes. It's not whether we, we've been offended. That's important. Here's the important thing in this is whether they're sinning against God. Why? Because that's, that's indicative of something wrong with the relationship with God, so yes, they're sinning against us, and we want to reconcile that because that creates a rift in our relationship, but it really creates a rift in the relationship with God, we want to help them stop sinning. We want to help reconcile them. And so we see, really the second point we need to see from these verses that we're, the goal is to re- rescue and restore. So number two, the goal is to rescue and restore. Look down, it says, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Or in the NIV or the NASB, If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. You've won over. You've gained your brother. If they listen to you, you've gained them. If if somebody else listens to you, they hear and they say, I desire to change. I'm sorry. I want to grow. I want to repent. I want to be different. I need help. doesn't mean they're instantly better or they stop sinning. But if they listen, if they hear with a desire to change, then what does it say? You've gained your brother. What it's saying is mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. You're to rejoice. It's not about making them pay not about coming to somebody else and demanding some kind of vengeance and retribution. It's coming to somebody else that they listen and getting them to hear and helping them hear. And then it's rejoicing like you've won the lottery when they do. I've won my brother! Yay! It's the same phrase there that won your brother. It's the same phrase of, of, of winning a prize. You've won the prize of a... Restore a relationship with your brother. You've you've won your brother back to a right relationship with God. You should rejoice like you've won the lottery when somebody responds and repents and says, I want to hear. Not that they hear it all the way. They hear it perfectly. But if they listen, if they listen. It doesn't say if they immediately change and they immediately do differently. No, if they listen. If there's a desire to hear, a desire to respond, a desire to change. And hopefully we have these these little mission accomplished moments like this all the time. Hopefully, as a church, we we actually grow in this. Now, some people can look at Matthew 18 and be really intimidated and think that, well, this is something that's only reserved for those most egregious things. Well, no, actually, this is how God uses His church to protect and preserve us from going astray. So this is meant to function in our daily lives. Um, I'm expecting, if you're married, you should have this occurring on a regular basis, if not daily, at least a few times a week with your spouse, if, you're, um, a si- if you have a sibling and you're in the same roof, underneath the same roof as them, I'm hoping that God helps you like a little sheep. He helps you grow. By using these verses, and helps use you to help your siblings grow or a classmate who, who says he's a believer or a co-worker who says they're a believer or whoever it is or somebody else in this room. You are the means of grace by which God wants the other person to grow through your help. God wants to give you help to grow through somebody else as well. These verses should be normative. They shouldn't freak us out. It should be a, a normal everyday occurrence. Or Matthew 18, the first portion at least is occurring. Listen, we need don't be intimidated about wanting to restore somebody else to a right relationship with our daddy. Or wanting to be somebody else wanting to restore us to a right relationship with our daddy. You know, we're all little ones. We need to expect that all of us will be need to be lovingly confronted. Don't think that you're better than somebody else. We're all just little ones here. This is not an attitude that looks for sin in your brother or sister either, and it's important that we see that. It's not, this is not a sin inspection committee that we're looking to hire. We're not looking for you to be the, all of you to be the sin inspectors in somebody else's life and, and looking, okay, they sinned in this area, they sinned in this area. They in this area. No, if somebody's sins at you, if it's obvious, if it's clear, go to them to help them. But if not, this is not talking about you know always looking to trip somebody else up. No, we're all little ones, we all need help. This is about saying, hey, come on, let's go, I want to pick you up let me help you, you've stumbled. If we come with a superior attitude, like the disciples came to Jesus when they asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom? The whole process is going to be fraught with self-righteousness and judgmental attitudes and it can go terribly wrong. And I think a lot of us have experienced that before. Maybe some of us have done that. Had a self-righteous, judgmental attitude. Jesus says, no, I don't, it's not my Father's will that any little one should perish. And so here's the means I'm giving. For you to help care for each other. For you to help rescue each other like lost sheep. To bring each other back like shepherds. All of us are called to bring each other back like a loving shepherd. And the third point we're going to see is that sometimes, unfortunately, that there's times when they don't get it. And so the third point you see is that you may need to keep going to your brother or sister. That's the third point. You may need to keep going to your brother or sister. Look down at the scripture in verse 16, if you will. It says, But if he does not listen in those rare cases... And I would say, by the way, as a pastor, the majority of the times when people are going and lovingly, when they're treating each other like little ones, when they're bringing God's word, when they're humbly correcting somebody else, when they're bringing that, I would say the majority of the times, God's at work. Why? Because two or three are gathered and God's at work and he, he, he makes, helps them respond. And so it's very rare when we get to the place where he doesn't listen. But look in verse 16, it says, but if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We can all be wrong is what this verse is helping us with. We can, maybe, maybe the reason why it's not effective is because actually we're wrong. Maybe the reason why somebody's not responding and listening is because maybe we're not accurate. Maybe we're not seeing clearly. Maybe we need help or maybe they need help. We're, we need clarity. We need help. And so we bring one, maybe, or two others with us. And, and let me caution, this is not to bring people who you think will be on your side. Don't bring people who you think will um, see your perspective. Bring people who you say, you know what, this person knows God's word. They're going to help see things clearly. They're going to help me see where me as a little toddler, me as a little one might have gotten it wrong. They're going to help them see where they may have gotten it wrong. And I'm going to trust the Lord as this third party who's not been offended. And they come in, I bring them in and, and say, hey, where do you see this in God's word? Here's... Here's my perspective. Here's their perspective. What do you What do you think? And and one of the real helpful things to do that so that this process works well is don't do that when the other person's not around. The context really it's it's taking somebody with you and bringing them to hear it. It's it's not t- it's not going to somebody else. Just take them with you. Take one or two others along with you. Not saying, go to one or two others, tell them what the other person did against you and how bad and negative and awful they are and terrible and what their big, rotten, dirty, lousy sinner they are. No, take them along with you so they can hear, they can open up God's word with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, it says... I used to rock climb uh, many years ago and I'm, I'd hate to see how, how bad I would be now. But when I did rock climb, if, if you did lead climbing, it's a kind where you go up and you place a little protection. They call it pro. You place protection in the rocks and you put a little anchor in and sometimes a little cam or something else or a little nut and you stick in there in a crack and you place protection as you go up. And hopefully the person who's in the lead is placing protection well because everybody else behind it is depending upon that. And so, but if the person beneath you falls... And slips off the rock, and the protection isn't secure, and, and, and you know, their anchors come out, then they fall, and it's just two of you, and all the anchors pop out, and you only have the anchors above you that you just placed, and one here, then it's going to be hard for you to lock off and hold them, and you're going to be a struggle to stay on the rock, it's going to be difficult. Now imagine if you're the other end of the rope, and you're the lead, imagine the other end of the rope is your spouse. Um, that would be frightening, or maybe it's your, your daughter, or your son, or your sibling, or um, your best friend or somebody you love dearly, imagine they're on the rope with you. It can be difficult if all of their anchors have popped out, all of your best protection, all of your care and attention to try to keep them from falling has failed. It's going to be very difficult for you and them both to stay safe. But if you have a couple of the people on the rock and they, they're all holding on and they all have protection placed, they all got anchors in then there's a good chance that that person at the end of the rope who falls, there's a good chance that not all of you are going to fall. It's very rare. Most climbing accidents occur when there's only a couple guys on the same rope and one pops off and, and their protection wasn't in very well. They didn't, they didn't put it in place very well. Well, sometimes in... In, in the church, you know, that can happen. Sometimes um, all those protections we put in place in this relationship, how, no matter how hard we tried and, and how, how good we were with bringing the word, sometimes it, it doesn't work and they're falling. And, and, and you know what? We're going to be at risk too. So we need to bring a couple others to help us, to help keep them from falling off, to pull them back up on the climb, to, to help them be successful, to help us too. It's the same idea in this passage or to take along one or two others to help us rescue the one who slipped. Or to rescue the person who slipped. You know, and if you're taking along somebody else, like I said, don't, don't debrief them ahead of time. But you can just say something simple and just say, Look, um, I'm struggling in an area here with a, a brother or sister. I need your help to bring clarity from God's Word. Can you come along with me and, and, and act as a counselor to us? Because you have God's Word and you're mature and could you just help us out here i'm not gonna tell you what it is because i don't wanna i don't want to bias you and I, i might be wrong too so could you help me and help them both and help us see what's right help us see what's true and clear in god's word look at what has occurred and then i encourage you maybe tell your perspective in front of that other person so that other person hears how you're speaking about them and then let that other person give their perspective as well before you ask that that third party hey What do you think God's Word says about our situation here? Can you help bring clarity? And then, in in the most rare cases, Jesus says it's going to be, in rare cases, it's going to be necessary when they don't respond even after all of that. And, And let me tell you, these are very few and far between times because God's designed a growing process so that people can see things so that they're rescued earlier. But there will be times because of the hardness of our hearts and the deceitfulness of sin when your brother may or may not respond and he says it's going to be necessary to tell it to the church but notice he doesn't give you a time frame of these verses does he? there's no time frame he doesn't say okay go to him one time if he doesn't get it right the first time then go to him the second time and that's all done and take another person and a third one and then they're all done and then you tell it to the whole church but if that was the case every Sunday morning we'd probably have somebody stand up this morning Sally sinned here's what she did and she didn't listen well, that's that's not. I mean, I send it to my wife, and it takes me a day or two to see it. Sometimes, that's not what it's saying. It, it, it's a process. Jesus is giving us principles of confrontation here, principles of reconciliation, and it's in the context of, of mutual love and humility and tenderness, seeking to restore. So, we want to use wisdom as a church as we're carrying these things out. I mean, when we use grace, when we use patience, realizing we're a little one, sometimes we're dense and it takes us a while to see things. So the question is, are, are they listening? Are they trying to listen? Are they opening to, open to listening? Because what he says is, if they refuse to listen, that implies a, a rebelliousness of saying, I'm not going to listen to you. I think you're totally wrong and I'm not going to hear you out. There's a refusal there. It's a very strong word. Many times there, there can be a refusal to listen or hear. And if that's the case, be gentle, come back and say, hey, can can we talk again? And trust that God will be with you. You know, there's a lot of times where we don't see our own sin. When it takes us time to see the truth. And we have to be patient with each other, knowing that they're a little one just like us. The, The goal is not brute correction in these verses. And by the way, I think we're all guilty of that brute force correction. We need to be gentle with each other not looking to brutally correct somebody and tell somebody where they're sinning and point out all their sins. That's, that's not the heart of this passage. It's important is to see that um, God's at work and I, I want to be a means of grace to help rescue them, to help restore them as a little one, to help bring them back into the fold. In this process, it might take a while. And we should be waiting. Here, here, let me. There's something good in our hearts to ask is, if we're thinking, "I just can't wait till they see how wrong they were," then we probably got the wrong motives. There's another scripture that would apply: First, take the log out of your own eye." We probably got some wrong motives. We, I can't wait for them to see that they really need to see that because they're feeling they're so wrong. And if we find we're angry, then we're, we're not approaching them how God would have us approach them. But if we're wanting to rescue them, we're waiting to rejoice to, because we've won them, and that's our hope. God, let me let me help them. Let me help them be restored back to you. I want to rejoice because. Uh, They've been won over, just like the shepherd rejoiced over the lost sheep. That's why we have that parable right before this. We're to rejoice over one another when we're restored back to Him. But there are those rare times when we go astray that we'll become confused and after multiple appeals... It might be necessary to broaden the circle and tell it to the church. Now, it's important in these verses where Jesus is talking that the formal church had not yet been established. And the word that's used for church is those those gathered ones, the gathered community, the gathered fellowship. And so there's a principle there of telling it to the people who are gathered in this local body with this person. So it, it could look like a bunch of different things. It could look like saying, well, let's continue to broaden it amongst the people who know this person. So one or two. And then telling it to the church. If they still don't respond after a while, then... Let's let's tell it to their small group and helpfully let them appeal as little ones and and hear their perspective. Maybe if not from there, then we begin to broaden it even more. And the goal, each step of the way, is that the person is restored, like a lost sheep, like a little one who's wandered away. But look in verse seventeen. At some point, things get to that that place, and you tell the whole church, and the whole church knows, and the whole church would agree, or the gathered community around them would agree that yes. They're not listening, they're being rebellious, they're refusing to listen. So in verse 17, look down your Bible, it says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If somebody has gone so far astray that they refuse to listen to the input of the local gathered body of believers over a period of time, and they will not hear, they will not listen, they refuse, and they're rebelling... Then we're to treat them like a tax collector in a Gentile. Now that's kind of those are some strange words for us because here's the thing: we're probably most of us in the room are Gentiles. So, so what does that mean? And, and does this mean we're to treat them like they're uh, they're an IRS auditor? Is that what that means? Tax collector? We're to we're to treat them like they're the IRS. And, I mean, I mean, if for some of you that might actually be kind of similar to the context where you're, you're like, I don't want to be around No, Well, that's not it either, actually. You're not to treat them like they're they're the irs or like they're another human completely different another species what to treat them like is saying you know we're we're to treat them as if they're an unbeliever we interact with them as if they're an unbeliever who needs jesus we are interact with them in a way that says my primary goal is no longer this one offense my primary goal is not that. My primary goal is the concern for their salvation. My primary goal is that they would know Jesus. Because how do we treat any other Gentiles, tax collectors? How do we treat any other unbelievers in our community? We love them. But our main emphasis is not on whether um, they're going out and, and they're sleeping with everybody they know. or Our main emphasis is not whether they're getting drunk or not with, with unbelievers in our neighborhood or around us and our coworkers. That's not what we focus on. We focus mainly on they, they need to be restored to right relationship with Jesus. They need to get to know who Jesus is and see that all their sins can be forgiven and they can be restored to right relationship with God. So when it says that, it doesn't mean treat them meanly. It means treat them, okay, you know what? I'm going to change the way I relate to them though. I'm going to change that, that I see that they, they really need Jesus. So every interaction I have with them, there's going to be continual appeal to them. I'm going to be interacting with them because I want them to see Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. I'm, I'm going to not act as if we have a deep fellowship here that we really don't have. I'm not going to pretend that we have this deep, great relationship as fellow brothers and sisters. Instead, I'm going, to, I'm going to appeal to them. I'm going to make continual appeals. Now, it, it means that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to invite them over to, to our small group to talk about how we fellowship and what's God doing in our lives. And, well, that's That's not appropriate. But what would be good is if you say, you know what, hey, can you come over for dinner next week? I want to talk. Let's talk about where you're at with God. I'd love to hear what's going on in your life. Let me appeal to you. Let me be clear, this is not somebody failing to see our preferences. This is not somebody differing on matters of conscience or opinion. This is somebody is clearly sinning. Clearly, you've brought it to one or two others. It's clear to them from God's word as well. And they're still refusing... And then they're refusing to tell it when the whole church comes and appeals to them in some way, shape, or form, and they're clearly refusing and saying, that's not God's word, I disagree, and I won't even hear from you. This isn't somebody going to a movie we don't like or dressing in a way we don't like, or this isn't somebody having a cigar or listening to music we don't like or somebody doing something we don't think is good. Now, I'd encourage you, when there are differences like that in the church, don't let those divide you. Talk about them. Bring God's word to bear. God's word does have bearing on those things. But those are not things that were to treat somebody like a Gentile and a tax collector and an unbeliever. We can interact with them still lovingly. And in the same way, when somebody who's been so hardened by sin that they're refusing to listen, realize they're a lost little one, they're a lost sheep, we need to go after them, realizing they're lost. Loving them with a more focused goal of getting them to see their need for God. And then look down in verses 18 talks about the agreement of the church and talks about the agreement of what God's word says. So look in verse 18. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. This is not talking about spiritual warfare in some weird sense here. This is not talking about commanding to bind things or loose things. This isn't about tying things up physically. This is actually in the context talking about forgiveness. Whatever is bound. When you say this is God's word, I'm, you're, I'm holding you to God's word. They're bound. And if you say, no, you're free in this regard, and I see that you're repenting, what it's saying is that's evidence of what's really going on in heaven. That's evidence that whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth should be loose in heaven. It doesn't mean that somehow we have some mystical power when we come and correct other people. What it's saying is that we are a means of God's grace. And so as God is using us in His church to bind the conscience of others by His word and to free the conscience of others by His word, That's what's occurring in heaven as well. So that should give us confidence that God's working in and through us. So what's the fourth point I want you to see is that really we can be confident in God's help. That's point number four. We can be confident in God's help. Look in verse 19. He says, Again, if I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You see, under the old covenant, the teachings of the law... They taught. And Jesus would have been aware of these teachings that if, if two sit together, it says in, the, in, the, in the, the rabbinical teachings, if two sit together and the words of the law are spoken between them, the divine presence rests among them. What he's saying is if any two believers are gathered together about any area, anything regarding confronting a fellow little one, any area of dispute, Jesus says it will be done for them by their Father in heaven. So sometimes we can take this verse out of context and think this is just carte blanche for any prayer. So two people can get together in prayer and ask God for anything and it's going to be done for them. That's not the context. And that's why it's important to read all Scripture in context. This is a part of correcting. Jesus instructing about correcting. Because why? What does he do right after these verses? He doesn't move on to talk about prayer. Jesus continues to talk about practical application because Peter comes up to him. Remember, we've already talked in this verse. Peter comes up and says, God, how do I do this? What if they respond and repent? And then he goes on to tell them the parable of the unforgiving servant. So it's all in the context of talking about conflict and confronting and responding. And if you two gather together and agree in God's name, but this is what his word, this is what his word says, and you're praying to God, Lord, help us. You can be dependent and confident on God's help being there. That whatever you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Whatever you ask in regards, in this regards. Now it can be practically applied that God is willing to hear. And it can be applied to prayer in other areas as well. But not primarily. It's about two believers appealing to God for their fellow little one to be rescued. And trusting God will do it. It's about believers approaching God in prayer on behalf of somebody they're confronting. And trusting God's going to make things clear to them and the other person it's anything they ask, it's any matter like this, no matter what the thing is, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. And think about that for a moment. That should give you confidence in God as you go and approach somebody. That should give you the utmost confidence. I'm gonna pray for them. And I'm gonna ask that God helps them see it. I'm gonna be confident that God's gonna do it. That God's gonna change me, He's gonna change them, He's gonna make whatever changes need to occur or happen because God's willing where two or three two or more. Agree on Earth about anything they ask will be done for them by Father in heaven. And then look in verse 20, it gives us an even more wonderful, more powerful promise. God will do whatever we ask in regards. when we have conflict, God's going to do it. And, and let me encourage you, maybe you are experiencing a conflict in the church right now. Maybe you're experiencing a conflict in your family. I love the testimony that Julie Cook shared three weeks ago about how she, for years, was having some conflict over the last couple of years with her, one of her brothers. And God helped her see that he was going to be at work. And God did what they all thought was unimaginable and impossible. Where the brother was refusing to listen. And God brought change. And he wasn't even a believer. And God was able to do that and bring reconciliation as she carried out these verses. Maybe you have conflict with a spouse or somebody else. As we're going through this, have confidence that God will do it. God will be at work. God will help reconcile. Because he doesn't desire that any should be lost. And then look in verse 20. It says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, here's a wonderful promise, there am I among them. When you get together and you confront somebody else, Jesus is with you. When you bring somebody else along for conflict because that other person not seeing us, Jesus is there among you. That should give us huge encouragement, huge hope for this process. That should make all of us say, you know what, I do have faith to do this. This is for me. I can do this because God's promise He's going to help me when I ask him in prayer. And Jesus is going to be here with me. Even if I feel all alone, I'm not alone. He is with me. We are never alone. The last thing we're going to see is that Jesus will be with us. That's the fifth point. Jesus will be with us. We have a wonderful promise. Jesus Himself... Jesus himself, he says, when two or three gather in my name, if you come in, in my name, what does that mean? In my name? If you come in my nature, in my character, if you're, if you're looking to come and do things in accordance with my will, if you're coming to, to make, make sure that they're coming back to me, if you're coming in my name, then I'm going to be with you. When we're sinned against, when we go to confront somebody else, he's, he's with us. He's there among us. That should give us hope. That should give us hope for the process. It should give us hope for them. It should give us hope for ourselves. Because Jesus is going to help us. He's going to help them. Now, it should also give us, in addition to hope, that should, should give us some caution. It should make us realize that, wait a minute, Jesus is with us. I want to make sure I'm not being self-righteous here. I want to make sure I'm not being judgmental. Jesus is with us. He's here. I want to conduct myself as a fellow little one. I want to seek to come to Jesus together and to honor Him. But ultimately, these verses, is meant to to be for the good of the church, so that people are restored back to Him, so that no little ones are lost, so that there's no unreconciliation, and so we can all be means of grace, like the shepherd in that story right before this. We can all be like that shepherd and go after the one who's lost. Why? Because our Father desires that none would perish, just like he didn't desire that you and I would perish. He wants you to be a means of grace in somebody else's life, so that they might not perish or fall. This this verse is meant to give us hope. God will be with us, He'll do it. And that Jesus will be among us. It's meant to give us hope for redemption. Hope for restoration. That's really what these versions are all about. God, God desires to use us, his people, to restore one another. And he promises to help us and to be with us in the process. Listen, I, we've been going through as a church over the last five, six, seven, eight weeks. Depends on what what small group you're in. And if you're, by the way, if you're not in a small group yet, I really encourage you to go and find a small group where you can practically apply what we hear on Sunday mornings, and where you can be in relationship with other people, so that you can get to know them, and they can help you, and they can understand where you're falling, and help you, and you can help other people. But we've been going through this, and as we've been going through this process, talking about how do we live as disciples. And peacemakers, how do we do that? How do we live as peacemaking disciples? I've been encouraged because I think God's really at work in our church. And so I want, to, I want to encourage you, challenge yourself. Where, God, do I need to apply these verses to my own life? Where have I lacked hope for confronting somebody else? Where have I been intimidated by this? Where have I done this wrong? Where do I need to repent? God, how have I for, where have I forgotten that you're at work? Jesus, let me remember that you are among us. And then I I trust that God will be at work to really just transform this church and transform each and every one of us to be more and more like Him. Why? Because He loves us like little children. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your kindness to us. Father, I pray that You would You would make Your presence known. Lord, You are among us. You are with us. You love us like little children. Lord, I pray that you would use your words to help encourage us and to help us all grow into your image, Lord. Lord, help us treat each other as little children and be loving. In your name we pray. Amen.